Hello and welcome to the April 7th, 2020 Annals of Internal Medicine podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Annals Editor-in-Chief, with an overview of recently published articles. SARS coronavirus 2 is top of everyone's mind, so I'll begin with the pandemic-relevant articles published since our last podcast. The primary route for spread of COVID-19 is thought to be through aerosolized droplets that are expelled during coughing, sneezing, or breathing. And there is much debate about the degree of protection that different types of protective equipment provide to healthcare workers. Annals published a case report from Singapore that describes a situation in which healthcare workers were exposed to SARS-CoV-2 during an aerosol-generating procedure. 85% of them were wearing a surgical mask, and 15% were wearing N95 masks, and none acquired infection. This preliminary observation suggests that surgical masks, hand hygiene, and other standard procedures protected the healthcare workers from infection. However, further study of the comparative effectiveness of surgical and N95 masks in preventing viral transmission is sorely needed. The behavior of the general public has an important bearing on the course of the COVID-19 epidemic and is influenced by people's knowledge and perceptions. The next article reports an online survey of representative samples of 3,000 members of the U.S. and 3,000 members of the U.K. general public to assess knowledge and perceptions about COVID-19. Although participants generally had good knowledge of the main mode of disease transmission and common symptoms, the survey identified several important misconceptions on how to prevent acquisition of COVID-19, including beliefs and falsehoods that have circulated on social media. The findings of this study could be used to set priorities and in information campaigns on COVID-19 by public health authorities and the media. Such information provision could, for instance, emphasize the comparatively low case fatality rate, the recommended care-seeking behavior, the low risk posed by individuals of East Asian ethnicity living in the U.S. and the U.K., and that children appear to be at lower risk for a fatal disease course than adults. In addition, to ensure that individuals focus their attention on those prevention measures that are most effective. Next is a commentary that reminds us of the importance of attention to the wellness of physicians and other healthcare workers during the pandemic. The authors offer some practical suggestions and the commentary should be required reading for leaders in healthcare organizations, large and small. During the expanding COVID-19 pandemic, the oncology community faces unprecedented challenges. Initial reports suggest that COVID-19 can be particularly lethal in patients with malignancy. As such, oncology specialists, as well as other providers regularly involved in the diagnosis, active treatment, and longitudinal follow-up of cancer patients must consider how to balance a delay in cancer diagnosis or treatment against the risk of a potential COVID-19 exposure, mitigate the risk for significant care disruptions associated with social distancing behaviors, and manage the appropriate allocation of limited healthcare resources in this unprecedented time of healthcare crisis. A commentary published on March 27th provides some practical advice about how to orchestrate this balance and the settings in which cancer care can and cannot be safely delayed. Pharyngeal swabs are widely used to determine the appropriateness of a patient's discharge after hospitalization for COVID-19 and whether isolation should continue. Authors of a brief report observed 22 patients who had positive results for SARS-CoV-2 in the sputum or feces after pharyngeal swabs became negative. 
These findings raise concern about whether patients with negative pharyngeal swabs are truly virus-free or sampling of additional body sites is needed. It is important to emphasize, however, that it is not known whether the positive RT-PCR results for SARS-CoV-2 observed here indicate that a patient continues to pose a risk for infecting others. The desire to quickly find effective treatments for COVID-19 may lead to relaxed standards of data generation and interpretation, which may have undesirable downstream effects. An example is the surge in interest in hydroxychloroquine as treatment following publication of a very preliminary study. Despite the study's substantial limitations, a simplification and overinterpretation of the findings was rapidly disseminated by the media, amplified on social media, and ultimately endorsed by many government and institutional leaders. Public interest in hydroxychloroquine rapidly grew, and the study's findings were extrapolated to include the use of the drug to prevent COVID-19 infection or post-exposure prophylaxis, indications for which there are currently no direct data. Two commentaries published in Annals discuss the situation and highlight the substantial limitations of the study that spurred the swell of interest in hydroxychloroquine and the ensuing hoarding and shortages that are making it difficult for patients who need the drug for treatment of rheumatic diseases to get it. The commentary authors note that careful study of hydroxychloroquine's effectiveness is warranted and that in critical situations, large randomized control trials are not always feasible or ethical. However, it is the responsibility of us as clinicians, researchers, and policymakers to promote proper interpretation of results, particularly in our interactions with the non-scientific community. Information on contamination of the environment surrounding a patient infected with SARS-CoV-2 is critical to developing strategies to keep healthcare workers safe, and a case report published in Annals provides a bit of such information. Researchers sampled room surfaces and the protective gear of a nurse who was caring for an infant with no symptoms but documented infection. Contamination of the infant's bedding, the cot rail, and a table situated one meter away from the bed were found to be positive for SARS-CoV-2. Interestingly, all three samples from the healthcare worker's personal protective equipment were negative for SARS-CoV-2. These observations confirm that an asymptomatic infant with COVID-19 can contaminate the environment with PCR-detectable virus. This report cannot determine the viability of the virus found in the environment. Next is the commentary that discusses the experience of an internal medicine resident during the pandemic. The author, Dr. Jesse Ross, a resident at UCLA, writes, quote, this article is a call to action to all of my resident colleagues around the United States that we will find ourselves remaining on the front lines in the days, weeks, and months to follow. That despite our fears, we must continue to remember and believe in the duty of our profession and our oath to care for the sick. Furthermore, this article is a call to action for all program leadership and administration. We are well-trained, we are eager to get involved, and most if not all of us are willing to remain on the front lines in the battle that is to come. Please ensure that we are prepared, end quote. Given the experience in Italy where the COVID-19 epidemic overwhelmed the capacity of the healthcare system, clinicians in the U.S. and elsewhere are bracing for the possible need to make difficult decisions about the use of resources. A commentary by authors experienced in teaching clinical communication skills offers practical suggestions for talking with patients and their loved ones 
should such circumstances come to pass. The advice is centered around three core principles. First, dealing with emotion is more important than giving lots of information. Second, information is best delivered in small packets that start with a headline. When we embed bad news in a long technical medical narrative, our patients lose the thread and miss the news. The third principle states that patient values should be at the heart of these discussions. On April 2nd, Annals also published three commentaries on the difficult intersection of the opioid misuse crisis and the COVID-19 pandemic. Each commentary provides a different perspective on the challenges these colliding pandemics present for patients with substance misuse disorders, the clinicians who care for them, and policymakers. And on April 6th, we published two articles that address critical pandemic issues. The first is a model developed by researchers at University of Pennsylvania to assist hospital administrators in predicting, under a variety of assumptions about the trajectory of the pandemic in their local areas, when hospital resources could be exceeded. The authors use an example of three Philadelphia area hospitals to describe the model development, discuss its limitations, and provide an online tool that hospitals and health systems can use in their own pandemic planning. A second article published on April 6 presents the results of a small controlled experiment to compare the effectiveness of surgical and cloth face masks at filtering virus when worn by patients with SARS-CoV-2 infection and cough. The researchers had the patients cough onto Petri dishes while wearing no mask, a surgical mask, and a cloth mask. Virus was found in samples collected after all three conditions. Interestingly, virus was present on all samples of the outer surface of the mask but not on all samples taken from the inner surface of the masks. Other COVID-19 related material includes several moving on being a doctor essays, Annals graphic medicine articles, and two special Annals on Call podcasts. One of the on being a doctor authors writes, quote, after I finished my residency training 20 years ago, I vowed never to wear scrubs again. During these two weeks, I dug my old scrubs out of the closet Without any discussion or plan, suddenly all of our attendings were wearing scrubs again, end quote. And because medicine beyond COVID-19 continues, Annals continues to publish articles on other topics. The first article I'll mention is a case report published online first on March 24th. The report describes a 28-year-old woman with hypothyroidism caused by non-classical Graves disease that illustrates the clinical utility of measuring functional TSHR antibodies prior as well as during pregnancy in all patients with a history of autoimmune thyroid disease. Next for March 24th is an article that reports a secondary analysis of a large randomized controlled trial that demonstrated that compared with placebo, interleukin-1-beta inhibition with canakinumab reduces incident anemia and improves hemoglobin levels among patients with prevalent anemia. The most pronounced effect was seen in participants with the most anti-inflammatory response. According to the authors, these hypothesis-generating data highlight the role of the IL-1 beta pathway signaling in anemia onset in a large population with chronic inflammation and motivates the design of prospective confirmatory studies to identify populations that might benefit from anti-inflammatory therapies for anemia. And the article that follows also addresses anemia, but in patients with myelodysplastic syndromes. Myelodysplastic syndromes comprise a group of disorders characterized by bone marrow failure, cytogenetic and molecular alterations, and potential for progression to acute myeloid leukemia. 
In low-risk patients, treatment goals primarily involve management of cytopenias, including anemia. Anemia is often treated with red blood cell transfusions that can lead to iron overload, which may have a negative impact on organs and progression to leukemia. Researchers conducted a multi-center randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial to evaluate event-free survival and safety of chelation therapy in iron-overloaded patients with myelodysplastic syndromes. They found that median event-free survival was approximately one year longer in patients who received chelation therapy versus placebo, and adverse events were of similar frequency in both groups. The last March 24th articles I'll mention were a commentary on how state medical boards ask physicians about mental health diagnoses and a research and reporting methods article on restricted mean survival, a method used in the study of canakinumab that I mentioned earlier. Moving to articles published on March 30th. First is a randomized trial of long-term treatment with immediate release isratapine for the treatment of early-stage Parkinson's disease that unfortunately showed no slowing of clinical progression in patients who received the drug compared to those who received placebo. Previous reports of complications after insertion of a permanent cardiac pacemaker have described rare local reactions caused by metal allergy that can be severe enough to cause wound dehiscence and require pacemaker removal. A case report published on March 30th revealed asthma prompted by allergic reaction to a recently inserted pacemaker. Skin testing of the patient showed positive reactions to titanium, nickel, and mercury, but not gold. So the clinicians replaced her titanium encased pacemaker with a gold encased pacemaker, and the patient's asthma symptoms promptly disappeared within 24 hours. On April 7th, an online first article reported a study that showed that incorporating a claims-based measure of frailty enabled more accurate prediction of cost of care. The authors proposed that adding this measure to Medicaid's value-based payment models will enable fairer reimbursement for clinicians who care for frail patients with greater needs. The authors of the next April 7th online first article developed a novel approach to initiating buprenorphine therapy that proved effective for patients at their clinic without inducing significant withdrawal symptoms. They first tried the protocol on a 62-year-old man whose regimen of controlled release oxycodone was ineffective for his back pain and impaired his mental acuity. Attempts to lower the dose were unsuccessful because he had significant insomnia. The clinicians designed a protocol where buprenorphine was overlapped with the patient's opioid therapy for four days. The patient continued his therapy at home, and on day five of the protocol, the patient did not report opioid withdrawal symptoms. On day seven, he noted night sweats and mild anxiety, prompting an increase in the buprenorphine dose. At one month, he reported feeling overall better, clearer, with unchanged pain intensity but improved work performance. The experience was successful enough for the clinicians to consider this protocol for all patients referred to their clinic. They report that to date, all patients opting for this method have done so successfully without opioid withdrawal symptoms. And the final April 7th online first article is an understanding clinical research article in which annual statistical editors discuss how to interpret studies using randomized trial data to compare non-randomized exposures. Most of the articles in the April 7th print issue were initially published online first and discussed in prior podcasts. New material in the issue includes an in-the-clinic review on hypothyroidism and a beyond-the-guidelines grand rounds in which experts discuss whether to treat an acutely ill medical inpatient with venous thromboembolism chemoprophylaxis. The print issue also includes two on-being-a-doctor essays. 
Go to annals.org to read them or to download audio recordings of the essays. Accompanying the April 7th issue is an Annals on Call podcast episode that features a discussion of human papillomavirus vaccination with Dr. Sandra Feihofer. That brings me to the end of this podcast, a reminder that you can earn CME for reading many of the articles I've mentioned. Also, there is a collection of Annals articles related to coronavirus that can be found by clicking on the link on the annals.org homepage. The collection also includes free links to Dynamit Plus modules on COVID-19 and a link to some ACP material related to the pandemic. I hope everyone stays well during the current challenging times for our profession. Thanks to Beth Jenkinson and Andrew Langman for their technical support.